Coming up next, the book ending reads The Christmas Carol. Welcome to the Bookening. My name is Nathan Alberson, and Merry Christmas! I'm so happy that you could join us for this special December Christmas episode of the Bookening. We're going to be talking about that most seminal of Christmas classics, The Christmas Carol. And I just couldn't be more excited because Christmas is all around us. There's there's snow falling. There's a... Snow all around us right snow now. Snow all around us right now. Even in the podcasting room. That's Even right. in the yeah, podcasting it's like room. As a, yeah. We really need to get that roof fixed, guys. <laughs> yeah. That AC, man. It's I think that, too cold. I think the mysterious phantom did something. Oh, yeah. That, we just want to apologize for... Uh, we realized last episode had some shenanigans, and we were really hoping that that episode would be an appealing one to our female viewership, to the wives and mothers that I know like to listen to the bookening. It's a popular book they've recommended to us. I'm just so sorry that the mysterious phantom hijacked that episode. I feel terrible. I should have been here. There should have been precautions. I just, I want to apologize, first of all, to my mother and to mothers everywhere. I want to apologize to women everywhere. Then I want to apologize to men and then boys and girls. Yes. Animals of various kinds and um, inanimate life. I want to apologize to everything and everyone for that last, those last couple episodes about Gilead. I thought they were foolish. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I found them to be... uh, Disrespectful. Disrespectful. Yeah. yeah. Um, very self-satisfied. You know, like, they, they, the mysterious phantom clearly thought that he was interesting and... Uh-huh. Yeah. And he wasn't. But, no. Sort of narcissistic. Yeah. 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 So we're, we, we, we at the Booking want to apologize for that. We promise that it will never, never happen. Nothing no, like that will No ever. more shenanigans ever. Zero yeah. shenanigans. E- 100% shenanigan-free. Now, you are hearing the voices currently of uh, two of my very best friends. First of all, the pastor who is a... Master. A master. He says it himself. I, think I accept it now. He accepts the mantle. A pastor who is a master of reading, in fact. Yeah, that's me. Mr. Jacob Theodore Menzel. <laughs> or whatever your middle name. What's your middle name? Really Kyle. Kyle, yes. Kyle, uh, yes. Mr. Makes more sense. It's very close to Theodore. Theodore, yeah. It's great to be here, Nathan. How are you? I, I'm doing fantastic, Jake, and I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. We are also joined by... Another one of my very best friends, the Ph.D. ABD himself. I don't know what else to say about him. He's a great guy. He's a killer teacher. Yeah. He's teaching a class right now at Athanasius College mm-hmm. on uh, expository writing and running a, helping run a workshop, a creative writing workshop. And it's the kind of thing I wish I had 10, 15 years ago. I am honored. 
It's me, Brandon Chastain. It's him, Brandon Chastain. And uh, Brandon? That's the one. May I wish you a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. Bless us, everyone. <laughs> so you guys excited to talk about Christmas, Carol? Oh, sure. I, I'm yeah. very excited. Well, there's no time like the present. So let me just get out my notes. Get it, guys? Present? Yeah, ghost of... <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's really... <laughs> You jerk. <laughs> uh, uh, all right, guys, let's talk about some uh, Christmas Carol. You guys ready to talk about some Christmas Carol? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. What's that sound? Oh, my goodness. What are those cl- clanking chains? Heavens to Betsy, it's, it's the ghost of context past. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's Brandon Chastain. Oh, no. Away from the ghosts and phantoms. Oh no. (laughs) Here to give us some much needed context about the Christmas carol. Brandon, take it away, sir. Well, what do we, how do we even begin? This is Charles Dickens. This is like this is basically like talking about Shakespeare, right? One of the great storytellers of the English tradition wrote probably some of the stories that everybody knows, some of the most famous stories. He's Oliver Twist. Tell the Two Cities, Great Expectations, David Copperfield, Christmas Carol. I mean, all these iconic stories that everyone knows about come from his but, pen. But has never really read. But has never really read. That's true. He has, I'll make this point later, but he's got a, he has a bad rap. He's got this weird cycle where he'll be loved and then he'll be hated. And then he'll be loved and then he'll be hated. Right now, we're kind of in the middle. He was loved, actually, for a little while again. And now... He's going back to being hated for various reasons. But anyways, just to talk about some of his backgrounds, actually get it right here from the front of this Penguin edition. Charles Dickens, he was born back in 1812. I think that there's this weird story that in 1812 there was this comet that passed over. This is this is for real. There was a famous, I think it might have been Halley's Comet, passed over the world in 1812. And they say a lot of the great writers and great artists were born in that year. He had a strange childhood, grew up in poverty. He worked in, like, what was called, was it called a blacking factory? It's where basically he had to put labels on jars and things, is my understanding. But not initially, right? No, not, not, not initially. He had a relatively happy childhood up to a point. His dad lost everything. Then he had to go into these sort of orphanage situation. So he actually went from... A relatively high-class, comfortable life to something much less than that. That's right, yeah. And so he knew the happiness that came with wealth, and then he knew the devastation that came with losing everything. From a very early age, he was a storyteller. And I think that's the way that you can really qualify Dickens. He's a, more of a storyteller than he is a great writer. Though I mean, he, he really knows how to say things in a way that's gripping, say things in a way that draws you into the story, but that has a certain quality to it that's not Hemingway, for example. He got his start writing small sketches for um, newspapers, which were collected into his first volume, which was Sketches by Boz, and then followed quickly by the Pickwick Papers, and pretty much he exploded in popularity. And then he just had an immense output. He wrote Oliver Twist. We've got Oliver Twist. We've got The Old Curiosity Shop, Nicholas Nickleby, Barnaby Rudge, Martin Chuzzlewit. He, he visited America briefly. 
wasn't overly crazy about it, wrote this book called American Notes. It was during this period when he was around 30 years old that he wrote his Christmas books. And A Christmas Carol was published in uh, 43, so I guess when he was 31. It'd be our age was when he wrote this story. He quickly grew to be a true celebrity in the fashion of who our Hollywood heroes are to us today. He wrote a lot of his books in serialized fashion, so he would publish his chapters in, I guess the best equivalent for it today would be like The New Yorker or Time Magazine. They would actually publish chapters from his book. You would have to wait until the next month to see the next chapter. And he was a decent businessman. He actually started his own journals as well, where he would publish his own stories. There are tells of like the ships coming from Britain with the new volumes of his, um, I don't know which one it was in particular. Was it the one with Little Dorrit, right? Uh, old Curiosity Shop. Old I Curiosity People Shop. wanted to know whether Little Nell lived or Little not. Nell, that's right. Yeah, and so it came to America and everybody was just trying to basically swar- uh, storm the ship to get these copies of this book because everybody wanted to know whether or not Little Nell lived or died. And so he was a real celebrity, worldwide global fame. He used a large part of this to help the poor. He was very philanthropic, and philanthropists make a large appearance and prominent appearance in most of his stories. Um, He always had a concern for the poverty-stricken areas of London. Um, One of the famous things he would do is he would go for these long, weird walks at night, sometimes would walk 20 or 30 miles in a night, and would just walk through the poor areas of London. He didn't he wasn't scared of these areas and he would go and he would talk to people and he would watch people and he would go to these places. And a lot of that comes through in his stories because he actually understood what these places were like, both from his childhood, but also from direct experience of actually being there. One of the criticisms he has, of course, is his sentimentality, but it did seem like he really cared. In fact, he wrote the Christmas Carol as a means of making people aware of the cruelty of greed, and the plight of the poor. In fact, I think there was some sort of report made by Parliament at the time. It affected him so much that it made him want to write this book. And he realized that if he wrote this book, it might do some sort of good. And so then he started getting letters after he wrote it with people saying that it was their favorite Christmas story, that they blessed him for doing this, that they, he had opened their eyes to their own greed, to the need to take care of the poor. Anyway, so that's part of the actual real cultural relevance that it had at the time. It was very popular. One of the ironies is the fact that the chapbook that it was published in was actually too expensive for anybody who was poor to afford it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember uh, reading this in high school, maybe in my high school literature teacher talking about how he he wanted it to be very nice and have like gilt edges and all kinds of stuff like that that really drove up the price of the book and also sort of hurt him financially yeah he didn't make much money on this book at all but it was one of his most popular books that he wrote it sold very quickly they had to publish a lot more copies because people all over england were wanting to read this new christmas story Dickens, as so just to kind of wrap up his life, as he became more famous, he kind of, I guess similar to Shakespeare, he wrote his more mature works as he became a more mature artist, believe it or not. <laughs> so he wrote David Copperfield and probably what I consider his best work, Bleak House, as he got older. And he would travel all over the world reading his manuscripts. He loved the theater. He was a very charismatic person. He was also not a great person either. He 
tried to justify a lot of his actions in David Copperfield in that he fell in love with this woman he thought was more mature than his wife he was already married to. And you see that played out in David Copperfield and reading that book and thinking of who Charles Dickens was is, is interesting to see the justification that he tries to go through there. He was also known, since we're talking about Christmas, he was also known as throwing the best Christmas parties in London. Hmm. Um, my understanding, I could be totally wrong here, is it kind of started with a Christmas carol, but he would go to all the parties. He would be one of the biggest merrymakers at the parties. He would have these parties at his home. They would be festive. He would have games and he would be full of laughter and gaiety and all this sort of fun. And it was supposed to be, they were famous for being amazing Christmas parties. You kind of see that come through in his writing. So if we want to talk about his style, he is best when he's, man, I guess no other real way of saying it, when he's mirthful, when he's happy, when he's not trying to be moralizing, but he's just being cheerful, jolly Dickens. And he's fun to read. You get the feeling that this was a fun guy to be around, similar to Chesterton in a lot of ways. You understand after reading Dickens why Dickens was one of Chesterton's favorite writers. Chesterton was a big Dickens defender. He's just full of the laughter of life. This unhinged ability to just feel the joy of life also gave him his biggest weakness, which is his sentimentality. And I think you see this come through in his children, especially the way that he would portray children. He had this um, way of sentimentalizing them that was just very weird. You see it in Charles, you see it in the Christmas Carol with Tiny Tim, where they become these angelic figures. You see it with Little Nell. You see it with the Chimney Sweep Joe in Bleak House. I like to make fun of it. It's when Chimney Sweep Joe is dying at the end. They have these big emotional scenes, and then Dickens, as the author, will just intersperse lines from the Lord's Prayer. And it's just the weirdest thing. And you realize he's trying to get you to cry, and he's trying to get you to feel a certain way, but you just feel kind of pandered to and used. But the theatrics, when they work well, they they really do work well. But that's what leads to the biggest criticisms of Dickens. He's kind of the Stephen King of classic literature. People love him for his stories, but hate him for his writing style. And that's kind of the way his ups and downs. They think he tells an amazing story, a gripping story, and he was the popular writer of almost all of England. Everybody loved him, but the academics hate him. And they go back and forth as to whether or not they're really going to like Dickens because he might offend their ability to have high taste, basically. They don't want to like something that's sentimental. That's where the debate really centers, is whether or not something that's sentimental can still be great literature. And to Dickens' fault, he is very sentimental. You kind of can gauge where it's going to go at the times when... I I could be completely wrong here, but my understanding is that when kind of Marxist uh, readings of literature were more in vogue, kind of at the beginning of this century, 2000s, even. He was more popular again because of his understanding of the poor and everybody's wanting to reevaluate literature that might be hated by elitists. But that's kind of changing again, whatever that might say about our current situation. Anyways, that's Dickens for you. Um, I can add as our resident weird and uncanny fiction guy that this this book does belong in the Victorian tradition of ghost stories. That was something that people did. You know, a lot of people would read ghost stories. Publications and periodicals would release ghost stories around Christmas time. There's absolutely nothing groundbreaking or unusual. Dickens wrote 
several Christmas ghost stories. In fact, he used to write, a, I think, for, for whatever publication, a Christmas ghost story every year. This is the one that happens to have remained and stuck out of the pack, but he's got a number of sentimental Christmas ghost stories, and then a number of ones that are just kind of creepy, supernatural ghost stories that you can tell at Christmas time, but don't really have much of the Christmas spirit. So uh, you'll definitely find a lot of people equating Christmas time with with the supernatural, with heaven and hell, speaking onto Earth, and all this sort of thing. It's uh, very British sort of thing, as I understand. Yeah, it. very British sort of thing, a very British tradition. A lot of the great Victorian ghost literature that's stuck with us uh, was popular and published around Christmas time. It was just that was how thing that was before Halloween was popular. So that was that was a Christmas tradition for whatever reason. I'm not sure how it got started, but that was a thing back then. Um, I also know a lot of historians give Dickens a lot of credit for basically revitalizing Christmas. People have argued back and forth about what he did, what he didn't do, but the fact is that the Industrial Revolution, coupled with the Protestant distrust of Catholicism, coupled with other things, had really diminished the popular celebration of Christmas. It wasn't big in America at the time. Definitely was celebrated less and less, and certainly celebrated less festively in Europe at large. And a lot of historians will argue for the Christmas Carol being a very important landmark in establishing the Christmas that we celebrate today, the Christmas that has gifts and presents and extravagance and parties. That's Dickens' idea of what Christmas is, and that's the idea that has caught the popular culture. And so I don't know that that's 100%, you know, I wouldn't say that, I'm not sure that you could properly say that Dickens saved Christmas or anything like that, but he definitely played a part in repopularizing a certain style of celebrating Christmas that is with us to this day. Some good context. Yeah. What'd you think about that context, Jake? It was interesting. Oh no! (laughs) What's that sound? Jingle jingle bells. Yeah, it's sleigh bells going through the air. Oh man. Santa flying through the air full of... Bags. <laughs> right above our heads. Uh, right this is kind of a small room. Hey, hey Santa. Hey. But Santa's bags remind me of baggage check. Yeah. What baggage did you guys bring to uh, the Christmas Carol? There's all the movies I've watched, and then there's Dickens himself. What baggage did you bring to Dickens? To Dickens, uh, I I actually can't tell you what Dickens I've read and what Dickens I haven't read. Certainly a ubiquitous high school reading. Great Expectations, I remember, and I hated it. I'm not sure how much of that was Dickens or how much of that was the teacher and the the quizzes about what color the... Miss Havisham's dress was. What, what color the bag of the guy that carried Pip away, you know, was, like... We had this... Um, that's key to the story. Gotta get that color for the bag. Well, she was... She was Everybody was using cliff notes and trying to cheat their way through, and the only way to be sure that you were kept honest was to try to see if you could pay attention to details that you couldn't find in cliff notes. But she was just way over the top with it, and I did not like Great Expectations. The Dickens I've built in my mind is painful and hard-slogging and spins pages describing leaves that fall from the trees. I've never appreciated him since, and I I tend to set a Christmas Carol as this 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 other thing uh, outside of Dickens. And I've liked, you know, the stories, the iconic characters. Like you said, I I recognize them, and I there's a reason they're iconic. But you know, I don't I don't think I've ever gone and read A Tale of Two Cities. I feel like I might have read Oliver Twist. So that's the baggage I bring to Dickens. On the one hand, on the other hand, there's. A Christmas Carol, and what I bring to that is George C. Scott and Alistair Sim, 
and a little bit of Muppets and a lot of bit of Mickey. Especially as a kid, we'd watch you know Mickey's Christmas Carol, and we'd watch uh, George C. Scott and Alistair Sim, and that was every Christmas season kind of thing. And occasionally we'd get the Muppets in there, and that's it. I think those are the only uh, versions of Christmas Carol I've seen. But obviously, those those movies have had a much bigger impact on forming everybody's understanding of that book than the book itself. And so I read it through George C. Scott or I read it through Alistair Sim. Yeah, there's some interesting things that every movie does that the story actually doesn't do, but I suppose we'll get to that. Your baggage, Brandon? I know you're a big Dickens guy. Yeah, my baggage is, for one, every year, for as long as I can remember. I don't know when the movie came out, but my family watches The Muppet's Christmas Carol. So that's like the thing my mom wants to do every I, Christmas Eve. That was one of those things that I wish that we would have done, but for whatever reason, it never caught on. I, re- I remember really loving it. Yeah. But I, I feel like I've only seen it maybe twice, two or three times. Yeah, well, Michael Caine as Ebenezer Scrooge. Yeah. Pretty great. So I, I brought the typical movie baggage and stuff, but uh, we touched a lot on my relationship to Dickens in our five influential books episode. Yes, we did. But... Available now, wherever fine podcasts are downloaded, folks. When I was, I don't know, 12 or 13, I came across, my mom encouraged me to read David Copperfield, and I loved it, and I found a lot in David Copperfield that you see in A Christmas Carol. Just this warm storytelling style, like whoever's telling you this story really cares about telling you a good story, and they care about their characters, and they care about the events as they're unfolding. And it's well told, it's engaging, and I I fell in love with him and with his storytelling. That's later Dickens. I never did like Oliver Twist. I never did like like early Dickens. It's weird hearing Jake talk. The two that I've always had the most trouble with are Oliver Twist and Great Expectations. And the two that they always, that and Tale of Two Cities, which I do like, but those first two, they always make you read in high school. Yeah, those are the ones that I... And I don't like any of those very much. Yeah, it's it's like trying to read the obscure Shakespeare. Yeah, huh. let that be your Shakespeare that you're. Now I've had people tell me that I should go to Bleak House and to Pickwick Papers if I want to appreciate Dickens. Those are the two things that I, would I say, remember. Uh, David Copperfield. David Copperfield. Bleak is wonderful. House. I'm sure we'll do it sometime in, on the booking. David um, Copperfield holds a very uh, fond place in my heart. I think mm-hmm. the reason uh, Pickwick Papers were thrown at have been thrown at me, I think, by a couple of different people, is just because. If I understand right, they're just really humorous pieces. And so it's supposed to blow up, I think probably just blow up my idea of Dickens as a stuffy Victorian who just... Yes, they will. I mean, Pickwick Papers are just absurd and funny. Okay. They're just scene after scene of just the Pickwick group and Mr. Pickwick being absurd and doing really, like getting caught up somehow in military marches and stuff you know how they would go with their carriages and watch the military parades Mm -hmm. somehow getting caught up in those and just the escapades that'll happen these weird mysteries that'll and it's it's fun you see where chesterton was influenced by dickens most i think (laughs) early dickens and then in late dickens the stuff that happened like around when he was first getting his chops as a novelist with oliver twist and stuff it's yeah it's fine but you can tell he's a young writer. And when he hits, Christmas Carol is getting right to that point where he's hitting his high mark, where he's learning how to tell a good story. And you said uh, he's got a number of short stories. Um, did he? Am I right in remembering he wrote the moth story? 
The Watch. The Single Mind, yes. The he wrote, the he wrote one Mind. of the classic Victorian ghost stories. Yeah, I, and I, I remember you. that, and I remember really liking yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty creepy. Uh, Christmas Carol is actually, I'd say, one of the classic uh, Christmas you know, Victorian ghost stories, but... Uh, the Signalman is a great uh, classic. Appears in all the you know kind of ghost yeah. anthologies and stuff, and it's a wonderful story. Yeah, I remember that one. So that's my relationship to Dickens. I did you go? Through, you, you I remember you talking about you went through kind of a snobby period with him. Yeah. Okay. Too, right? So I, as a youth, when I was just learning to love literature, there were two authors that I read constantly and pretty much read nothing else. I read Dickens and I read Tolstoy. Um, and I loved them. And then I got into the period where I thought that, you know, I heard a few people make fun of Dickens. And so I decided I wasn't going to like Dickens anymore because I must, it must be bad to like Dickens. And so then I tried to like Kafka and I tried to like James Joyce and I tried to like... People it, are so dumb. Yeah, people are dumb. People and are so dumb. anyone listening to this who has the same tendencies I do, just like Dickens and continue liking Dickens as an undergraduate in college and you'll turn out to be a must, much healthier person <laughs> because... There's no re- uh, now as I'm older, I go back and I read David Copperfield and I read A Christmas Carol and I realize Dickens is as good as I thought he was when I was 12 and not stupid yet. Well, you know what the thing is? There's there are things that are silly about Dickens, but the antidote to those things isn't cynicism. The antidote to those things is maturity and an understanding of what true sentiment is. And that, those are things you'll get as you're older. But just copying a posture as like a cynical youth that just, you know, wants to kick tiny Tim's crutch out from underneath him because kids are adorable and it makes you want to puke, that is not going to lead you to anywhere good or any kind of real maturity. And that's yeah, what and you that... see a lot of people do as they reject Dickens. Yeah, I will say I went through a many years i guess i can talk about my baggage a little bit i have baggage with christmas and that i was exactly your cynical christmas hating teenager you know type person that we're describing i had a lot of really bad christmases a lot of bad christmas not to get autobiographical or uh, confessional here but christmas it could be a rough time for my family sometimes in the last couple of years i've come to love it and part of what i've come to love is just the childlike kitschy kind of you know, White Christmas, Bing Crosby. And I think that's been good, but I don't want to talk about that anymore. Um. (laughs) (laughs) But if you want to go read about it, Nathan wrote a great essay about it. Yes, available now on warhornmedia.com. Called The Extravagance of the Stars. The Extravagance of the Stars. The, uh, Yes, uh, you can read about that. It's a, perhaps, a, perhaps a little sentimental, I don't know. But Christmas Carol is something that I grew up with, particularly in the George C. Scott version. Man, I've got that thing memorized. I could probably, let me see, how does the music go? That's the music from the George C. Scott version. We used to watch that. My mom and dad both loved that thing, and uh, I grew up with it. I went through every period that a kid does growing up with something like that, where you think it's great, and it's really scary and effective and charming as you're a kid, and then you become a you know preteen, and you start to sour on it, and then you're a teenager. But I've come back around, and I love that George C. Scott one. We also wore out the Muppets. Um, you know, I can still probably sing those songs too. It's in the singing of a and a choir. It's a by the fire. Oh, wherever you find love, it feels like Christmas. Light the lantern, not the rat. Light the lantern, not the rat. (laughs) (laughs) It is Brandon, the season of the spirit. The message, if you hear it, 
is make it last all year. Anyway, um, <laughs> I grew up with the uh, the Muppets and Michael Caine and, you know, and uh, George C. Scott. I have read The Christmas Carol several times, but I do find it to be one of those things that's just very inextricably linked to the movies. It would be silly and snobbish for me to pretend like my entire experience of and reaction to the christmas carol isn't filtered through cinema because it just is as i imagine it probably is for a lot of people for Um, you dear listener for what yes for you dear listener um reading the book is a little weird because i hear it in different voices uh, from actors and sometimes i'm like shut up dickens let the you know let the let george c scott come to here scott do this (laughs) um and it's no it's no shame on Dickens. Hey, Dickens, why'd you cut that awesome scene with the parlor game? Right, yeah, yeah. There are things that I miss <laughs> from George C. Scott. <laughs> Where's Rizzo the Rat? Come on. It was hilarious in that. Um, <laughs> what an eagle was the schoolmaster. Come on. Right. It's Jacob and Bob Marley. Come on. <laughs> the two classic ghost characters. <laughs> Dickens is just filtered through the movies and, you know, filtered through cinema, filtered through It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, Christmas is just so cinematic. And I don't well, it comes that. with all kinds of baggage itself. Yeah, Christmas comes with baggage itself. As far as Charles Dickens goes, I've always liked Charles Dickens okay. Like I said, not a huge Oliver Twist fan, not a huge uh, Great Expectations fan for whatever reason. Um, I've tried both those novels multiple times in adulthood and childhood and never enjoyed either one. But love Tale of Two Cities, love Nicholas Nickleby, love, love Dickens in general. I like him. He's got... His problems, as Brandon talked about, and as we'll talk about more. But, this whole uh, thing's making me interested, excited to go visit Dickens in the future. Yes, and that's up to you, dear listener. Just make sure that the booking is profitable. Rate us on iTunes. Five stars. Five stars. Five stars. That's the Be extravagant in yes. your distribution of stars. Give us the Christmas present of, of promoting our podcast so that it can continue. <laughs> And uh, make lots of money, because that's really what this is all about. You're but, always a good man for business, Nathan. Yes, I... Let's <laughs> talk <laughs> about these characters in A Christmas Carol. First of all, what, what type of characters are these guys? Would you consider them to be three-dimensional, well-rounded characters, or or what? I feel like that's a leading question. Yeah, I do, too. <laughs> what do you want us to say, Nathan? That they're not they're not three-dimensional characters? I think, no, what, I think want. what he wants us to say is that they're two-dimensional characters so that we can put ourselves into each of their positions. It's a common theme with Nathan over the... Yeah. Whenever we see flat characters, it's what he likes to talk about. Hmm. I'm sorry, I just ruined it for No, that's an interesting theory. That's actually not what I was going to say, as a matter of fact. So we can put ourselves in the place of Ebenezer Scrooge. Because he's just the one-dimensional flat, two-dimensional, typical greedy old man. That is a way that I usually defend, like, crappy, you know, like... Dracula. Dracula. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Well, I guess then, in that case, the char- Dickens, he's strange with his characters because they're not two-dimensional in the sense that the characters in Dracula are two-dimensional. Like, yeah, well, that's just Stoker's characters are two-dimensional because Stoker couldn't give us three-dimensional characters. Well, okay, so yeah. we have... Two-dimensional characters in Stoker. We have, we could say, two-dimensional characters in Dickens. What's the difference? There's more artistry. life. Yeah, artistry. There's more life and individuality to each of the Dickens characters. I think Dickens realizes that he can give characters personality and quirks and interesting things about them while still making them 
relatable, leaving enough space for you to put yourself into them. Yeah, besides Tolstoy, there's no other author whose characters I remember more vividly. He has such a variety of characters, and they're so sharply drawn. Yeah, they're, they're almost caricatures. Or they're grotesques, very... as they're often called. Yeah, they're, right. they are, gro- they are similar wanted. to grotesques. I think of, like, what's that guy that does the Hirschfield drawings or whatever, yeah. you know, the mm-hmm. big bulbous um, foreheads. and you, Thomas Traddles, all the uh, Uriah Heep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's who I. Think. Yeah, Ebenezer Scrooge. These guys, they're they're individuals. They're, there is no one else like them in the Dickens universe. But they tend to always embody like one character. You know, Scrooge is greed and selfishness personified. Yeah, he's more like one aspect of your character taken to the extreme. Mm-hmm. But even then, I mean, Dickens has other characters who are greed, but they're different characters. Mm-hmm. They, they have their own yeah. personalities. So you have I can't remember the name of the guy, but you have the evil dwarf in i believe it's old curiosity shop i was actually in reading this i was gonna say the opposite of what you guys expected me to say um i was sorry <laughs> i was a little surprised by yes they're grotesques yes they're caricatures yes scrooge is a two-dimensional exaggerated character but he gives you so many hints at the psychology that it's really kind of maybe not well-rounded but he he makes a lot of there's just a lot of nice little hints like, you know, and then the movies tend to fill it in and make Scrooge's father really mean or whatever. But I, I like how the story gives you just enough. You know, a fan says father's much kinder than he used to be. And that's really all you need to know to yeah. understand a certain aspect of Scrooge's character. And, and you get just enough hints and just enough little things around the periphery and the way he expresses himself, the kinds of jokes he makes give you a I think uh, in reading it this time, I was struck by uh, how relatable and human and non-exaggerated in an exaggerated comical kind of a way how much depth there actually was to these characters to scrooge in particular he says he he does it through like you said particular scenes so you have his childhood in the schoolhouse and the way that he isolates himself and then as he grows older the choices he makes and you it it's good you get it through these little vignettes of his past but then also the way that dickens relates to the ghosts um the most famous one is there's more of what gravy than a grave yeah. about you this these human touches that he gives to scrooge to let you know it's always that, interesting to see how that's going to be played to that line you know how cynical or how fearful or how yeah well yeah that that's that maybe proves our point that yeah. if you've seen enough adaptations you'll see that people play very stern very reserved different the the classic Alistair Sim, you know, crooked old, you know, kind of old man kind of character is, I think, what a lot of people think of. But then you've got George C. Scott, who does a very robust kind of, <laughs> yeah, kind of angry and yet kind of enjoying it. You know, George C. Scott's kind of laughing as he says, you know, should be buried with his, you know, a hollyhock through his heart or whatever. He, he George C. Scott kind of gets a little kick out of it, which is one thing that I remember my parents always enjoying about anytime George C. Scott would say something mean and just be barely concealing, you know, his contemptuous laughter. They just got a big kick out of that, um, which is a nice Christmas memory. <laughs> but... <laughs> But we were looking uh, a couple of days ago at clips from Patrick Stewart, which I had never seen, and he, he played it completely differently. Yeah, Patrick Stewart does this very kind of subdued, like, there's more of grave than gravy about you sort of a thing. Um, he played it as though he were in denial. Right. Whereas Scott played it. It's kind of like a dark, like cynical, cynical like, kind of joke. Like, even, there's more of grave. Scott really didn't believe what he was. Right. The Jim Carrey version is the best. <laughs> 
<laughs> I have no plans to ever see that. Yeah, I started to watch it, and I, I just couldn't get into it. I There's an to... extended sequence where he is, like, on this runaway carriage through London. Okay. Yeah, and the Robert Zemeckis 3D stuff that's happening, and it's just... Oh, gross. It's, like, almost, like, probably five to ten minutes of this carriage oh, going. That's what you get when you write something so iconic, though. You get... Oh, yeah, I mean... Mr. Magoo has done his version of it. I mean, everybody. Yeah, for the yeah. Berenstein Bears, the most hated of bears, in my opinion. Of Dr. Seuss did his version. Dr. Of Seuss it. did his version, which is one of my favorites. It's one of your favorite versions. <laughs> the Grinch, how the Grinch stole Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> when Scrooge like <laughs> closes the tree like an umbrella. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, also famously portrayed by Jim Carrey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There was one thing about reading it again and that um, really was struck me as a lot different than any movie version I'd seen about Scrooge. Did either of you guys catch it? So something completely different about the books. From any movie version I've ever seen. Something that the movie versions always tweak, and I would actually say the movie versions, I might kind of prefer what the movie versions do with it. Any guesses? Give us a hint. Well, it has to do with how Scrooge's character tracks through the story. Nobody wants to hazard a guess. He breaks down and sobs when he sees himself as a little boy. In the book? In the book. Yeah. And he's pretty much on board, more or less, from that moment on. The movie versions always kind of keep him in play and sort of going back and forth between cynicism. And and it's not that the movie versions change the dialogue or anything, but it's like if you were reading the Dickens book straight without being influenced by any movie versions, I think it'd be the story of a really grumpy, horrible, bitter old man who goes on this journey and immediately is touched and changed, you know, and then we just, yeah. we just get to read the process of it. You know, he's, he's like sobbing. Yeah. The movies always keep it up to the point where the final ghost comes. Almost any movie version I have seen follows the same trajectory, which is that he kind of gets it by the end of Christmas present. And then Christmas yet to come is just the horrifying icing on the cake that kind of drives it all home. And then you get to the moment where, you know, can I scrub the writing away on the stone? And it's his bed sheets. In the book, you really actually don't get a lot of that. You get like he's he breaks down sobbing as soon as he seems himself as a little boy. And then he's like laughing and enjoying himself at Fred's house during Christmas. And he's like feeling bad for Tiny Tim. And the spirits are kind of rubbing it in a little bit and, you know, making the helping make the points. But you're just watching along with him at that point. Right, exactly. He becomes, yeah, I, I hadn't noticed that. But yeah, I think you're right. And I do think that's a virtue of the movies as opposed to the book. Well, the other thing I was going to ask you, how fast did Dickens write this? It feels like he must have written this. In I think he wrote it very quickly. Oh, I think he wrote it in a matter of weeks. Yeah, days. that makes it, it just feels like something that had to go to press because there's there's just some weird stuff. Like two guys come and see him to ask for a donation at the beginning. And then at the end, he runs into one guy. You know, it's not a big deal, but it just feels like the kind of sloppy stuff that you would maybe fix in a second draft. Um, I've, always, I've, always, I've always wondered whether it's a mistake or whether it's intentional because it works wonderfully. But it's, I've never been able to figure it out with the and even the movie versions do it where Marley tells him that the ghosts will come one day after the next, after the next, after the next. And then they all do it in one night. Um, yeah, that always has confused me. I always kind of thought that it was a spectral kind of just like ghost logic. Uh And I thought it was kind of cool. And I'm all for keeping it for that reason. But in the movie versions, they'll give him lines like I think George C. Scott says, they can do whatever they like. They did it all in one night. 
you're right that in the book, Scrooge is already, by the time he's done with Marley, he's like, he's convinced. I think that's something that the movie versions have improved and probably something that if Dickens had had the time and ability to improve, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he would have improved. Um, yeah, because I'm thinking of his other stories. He's not against character development. Right. Great Expectations is about Pip and David Copperfield. David Copperfield kind of changes, I guess, but... Mm-hmm. At least his experience of the world kind of adapts and wises changes, him yeah. up a little bit, and yeah. So it's not like, in other words, it's not something he was incapable of. So I think you're right. I think it was just a phenomenon of how quickly he wrote this. So mm. he did write it quickly, and maybe the impact he was going for wasn't so much this transformation. Yeah, the transformation of Scrooge more as just showing us how his past had led him to be this person, and then his complete acceptance and transformation at the end. But, yeah, I think you're right. I don't think he was invested in the slow transformation, which in the changes gives it more power. Yeah, no, I I think it does. I think that's one really obvious change that almost every screenwriter, I mean, I can't think. Maybe Alistair Sim changes a little faster than George C. Scott does. I'm trying to remember, but... No, he, not to my memory. I think he makes disgusted faces all the way. He's kind of... The Alistair Sim version does some interesting things in terms of filling in the backstories, and there's some evil mentor for scrooge like some banker guy that shows scrooge and marley how to like apply their trade yeah they've got this scene at a table and yeah he ends up they end up stealing the business from him and putting him out of business or buying him out cheap or something like that in place of fezziwig or no fezziwig's still there but there's just this other guy this other guy yeah he he basically steals them from fezziwig i think and says you know i see you've got a good head for business and yeah, it's some of that backstory of how they were sort of... They had it good with Fezziwig, but they got corrupted by this other guy. Yeah. Well, Fezziwig, he stands in this long tradition of Dickens philanthropists. Yeah, just, just jolly. The What are those guys called? Yeah, when you were the, describing the parties... Uh, uh, yeah, that is... he's Dickens, in most of his books, has a stand-in for himself. David Copperfield, famously, that's David Copperfield, but... What are those philanthropist guys called that, like, dig Nicholas Nickleby out of his poverty? Yeah, the, yeah, I can't have remember. Some corn, the Cheerables, the Cheerable yeah, Brothers. Cheerables. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the aptly named, cheerful, fuzzy, wiggy, and kind of lovable But you guys. have them in almost every one of his novels, these jolly, they're almost always big mm-hmm. fellows, but they're just jolly and happy and good guys. Yeah, he loved happiness and joy, and you see it come through with these characters who he chooses to elevate. It was nice. I think a nice thing about Dickens is that he always had good guy it wasn't strictly divided into noble, poor, and disgusting, mean, petty, rich, but it was, there was always good guy, good and evil people on both sides. And mo- yes, money could corrupt, but there were people that, you know, were in- impervious to that somehow. Yeah, because yeah, cause the philanthropist by nature is a wealthy person right? who has chosen to be good with their money. And so, and you can always tell a lot about an author by who they elevate. So if you think about... um Hemingway, for example, elevated you know, Robert Jordan. Mm-hmm. That was his hero. And then look at Dickens. Who does he elevate as his heroes? And it's, it tells you a lot about an author just based on who they throw into the light as the person they want to have be their heroic figure. So who does Dickens elevate as his heroes, generally speaking? Either young men who are impressionable but good-hearted. So in that that would be Pip and David Copperfield and Nicholas Nickleby. Fred. Fred, yeah. Or it would be just your good, hardworking yeoman. So I'm thinking of uh, 
is it Joe in Great Expectations? Yeah, he's a really lovable. You really yeah. love Joe. You have other you have figures like that Aunt Betsy in David Copperfield. Yeah, you love her too. Um, and then also then just these philanthropists that you're just supposed to good. So Mr. Jarn, Mr. Jarndyce and Bleak House. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so he has. And it tells you a lot about his world and who he chose to love. You also got to love uh, Dickens' talent for naming people. I've heard some people complain about his characters having such on-the-nose names like Ebenezer Scrooge. And... It's a great name. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great name. Well, it was like you were talking about last time with – or two times ago or however many episodes ago with Dracula, Jake. You said one of the iconic things that we can't imagine, you know, Dracula without is just the name Dracula. Yeah, it's an and awesome – it's a perfect name. He's Yeah, yeah part of the reason it's he's lasted in pop of... culture is, you know, he was a hard – hand at the grindstone joe schmidlap that would be a not as good as ebenezer scrooge in my opinion it's pretty cool when you can ruin a, a name for everybody ebenezer mm-hmm. you take it actually an actual great thing from scripture what ebenezer is this rock of remembrance of god's kindness and mercy to the people of israel and you just totally take that iconic scriptural image and now it represents like greedy Greed grasping unfeeling nobody can disassociate it so everybody changes the line and uh come thou fount here i raise my ebenezer to you know whatever it is everybody everybody sings now yeah, yeah. and lyric. when you do go to a church that actually sings here i raise my ebenezer your brain just if your brain is my brain can't help but think oh hey ebenezer scrooge <laughs> ebenezer scrooge <laughs> i will long Today's episode of The Bookening was produced by Nathan Alberson and written by Nathan Alberson. It was executive produced by Nathan Alberson and Jake Mensel and performed by Nathan Alberson, Jake Mensel, and Brandon Chastine. For more great content, visit warhornmedia.com. You can also check us out on Facebook at Warhorn Media, Twitter at Warhorn Media, and Instagram. Guess what? Warhorn Media. Yeehaw. 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 Yeehaw.